another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I've just been exploring the cultures of consciousness on my own outside of the United States for the last uh, five weeks. It's been a really great trip. Went to Australia for, uh, for a week for the Entheogenesis Conference, which I have to say is one of the best psychedelic conferences I've ever been to, not just because it was in a lovely outdoor uh, retreat center, which allowed us to see uh, kangaroos, which the Australians think of as about as interesting as, as deer, uh, but of course all of us Yanks were um, pleased as punch to see the weirdos hopping around. And then following that, uh, my lovely wife and I went to um, uh, Bali for a number of weeks, which was excellent because the, uh, the volcano uh, kept the tourists away, and so this clearly over-touristed place which uh you know is is a bit rough at uh at full season was um sadly for the uh, people depending on the tourists but nonetheless very happily for me empty um and so we had a wonderful time with all sorts of weird encounters and crazy characters and it reminded me just how nice it is to get out of the united states and to plunge into a culture that in some ways is still animist in some ways is still thoroughly saturated uh, with the gods, with rituals, with offerings, with relations, with incorporeal beings, and however much trouble those kinds of things can sometimes get you in, they also uh, offer a, a, a mighty cushion from the alienating effects of our postmodern dystopian technological archon society, which seems to be just ramping up every time uh, you look away, you look again, the notches are a little more crisp. Uh, so I return to the new year. Uh, one of the things I want to do this year in 2018 on the podcast is to uh, talk to more of my friends. And uh, not just out of a personal indulgence, but really more to get out of the habit of, of interviewing people just because they just sort of released something like a book or a record. And now it's the publicity tour time. Uh, and to amplify the degree to which this show is about uh, conversations, meetings of minds, uh, exploration, and uh, really just encountering the kinds of characters who have uh, found their own unique ways of uh, navigating uh, this multidimensional conundrum that we call human existence. So, for our initiatory launch-off of the 2018 Expanding Mind Conversations, I've chosen uh, a lovely man, one of my uh, my great good friends, a fellow named David Arnson. And while you probably have not heard of David Arnson, uh, it's important to recognize right off the bat that Dave, Dave Arnson founded and leads or guides uh, the world's longest running uh, modern surf band, Insect Surfers. Uh, and so we'll be talking about surf music as well as uh, entheogenesis and uh, coloring books in the conversation ahead. So, with no further ado, David Arnson, welcome to Expanding Mind. Hey, Eric, how the hell are you? Damn you know, glad to be here yeah, in Radio Land. Yeah, it's fun. Radio Land's fun. It's really good. You know, it's, it's good to hear your voice. Uh, of course, I love to see you play guitar. That's one of my favorite ways of interacting 
uh, with you. Sometimes we even play guitar together, which is fun. But I really, I really enjoy. You're one of my favorite live guitars. You have great performance style, and you you bring into the language of surf music, which a lot of people think of maybe as kind of uh, quaint, a little dorky, uh, very old-fashioned, sort of behind, you know, kind of a little nostalgic pocket. You bring a uh, a blazing uh, psychedelic uh, light as well as a gritty uh, Keith Richards-y rock and roll uh, messiness that uh, that uh, definitely adds some important twists to to surf music. So I wanted to ask you, since you've had a long and illustrious life as a weirdo and creative person, where were you in your life when you first sort of, not just heard surf music, but went, hey, the surf music thing is something I think I want to get pretty deep into. Like, how did that, how did your band start and what was it about surf music at that time that was going to become the platform of decades of your you know, not all the kind of music you've made, but a lot of the music you've made has been in this vein. So what was it that uh, initiated you into the surf music current? Yeah, well, it definitely has been decades. And actually, also, we'll briefly do an aside here and say that the original uh, surf music is completely instrumental. A lot of people think of say like the beach boys and janet dean which is a bit more vocal oriented but surf music was created in the very early 60s by uh people like dick dale and the deltones and uh, the bel airs and they would use uh reverb units which were kind of like echo tanks and they would do glissandos on the guitar like and dick dale would try to um give you the sounds that he would hear uh, when he was surfing, like impressions of waves and water and high speeds. Um, so um, the very first surf music I heard, my parents bought the Beach Boys Surfing USA album when I was about six years old. And that one album of theirs is really interesting because out of 12 songs on it, five of them are actually instrumental. And I heard Beach Boys play Miser Lou uh, before Dick Dale, which was great. And anyway, these five instrumentals uh, were, were pretty cool. And my dad was into motorcycles at the time, and he bought a record called uh, Black Boots and Bikes by The Kickstands, which was like basically the Beach Boys wearing motorcycle helmets. And they sang about, you know, motorcycles. But again, it was half instrumental and half vocal. And I always liked that instrumental sound. I always liked instrumentals all through my uh, childhood and high school and um, years. When I was in uh, well, you know, actually, college, before you, I found... Wait, hold on a second. Before yeah. you go off, I wanted to stay a little bit with that, that first point about surf music, and then we could talk about uh, your discovery. Just because I think it's often sure. um, under acknowledged how significant surf music is in the larger history of instrumental pop music that um it's important that it's instrumental and but even more than that the other things you're saying is one is that it's deeply technological in the sense that you know all obviously all electric guitars are technological in some ways but surf music was a genre that grew up within specific technical possibilities reverb units 
and the whole universe of the Fender guitar, which was deeply linked into the origins of the music and the kind of instruments that people played and the kind of tube amps people played on. So they were exploring, because I see surf music as like a proto, not ambient music, because it's got beats in it, but it, that it's exploring sonic electronic space in a trippy uh, elemental way like it's trying to capture the feeling of water the flows the echoes the the juiciness the weirdness of being kind of outside of the air and half inside the water so it's trying to like capture these really elemental feelings and using trippy technology to do it and so if if you just hear the beats and the kind of like you know, kind of goofy frat boy aspect of it, you're kind of missing what I think is really profound uh, about the music in terms of a kind of proto-ambient space music almost before the, the name of it. You know, in the early 60s with a bunch of weirdos in Southern California, they are not, you know, these are not mainstream characters, nor are they avant-garde musicians, but they're doing something really, really profound. Right, uh, that's a good point. Uh, in fact, a lot of the musicians were really, really young too. They're uh, uh, most of them. I mean, besides Dick Dale, who's a little older, were around high school age. But everybody was absorbing kind of um, and purveying. You know, a lot of it, uh, like the Tornadoes, Joe Meek in England put out an instrumental called um, Telstar in the early '60s, and that started with really spacey sounds. And he was trying to, you know, convey, you know, outer space. And, you know, the space program that was really big at the time, the emerging space program. And a lot of the uh, bands uh, would do, uh, along with, you know, referencing surf themes, would reference outer space themes. And they would try to uh, make, um, you know, like satellite sounds and, and reference those like the... Um, the Nocturnes had a, a, a really trippy song called Third Star to the Left. And um, there was a band in Australia called the Atlantics, and uh, they would use really crazy sound effects like clicking on the bottoms of the strings and the bridge. I mean, it, it was almost like proto-Sonic Youth in a way, you know, playing parts of the guitar that you wouldn't think of normally, you know, to make kind of like weird pinging sounds. So there, there definitely was kind of a, a, a reach to find cool sound effects with the very limited technology of of the time and um so yeah that's definitely a a, a factor there is kind of a, a, a maybe unintentionally psychedelic but definitely sort of a sonic exploration sound to a lot of the old surf music of of, of the early 60s yeah yeah and uh, so what was it like when you started you know, some, to play? Well, I found a, a record um, when I was in college by this band, Davey Allen and the Arrows. Davey Allen was a real maverick. He was a studio musician in uh, Los Angeles, but he discovered the fuzz pedal, uh, which is, you know, makes a great distorted sound. And he ended up doing soundtracks for these Roger Corman biker movies like the wild angels and devil's angels and his, his thing he would he'd be using his fuzz guitar to simulate uh, motorcycles you know and kind of this gnarly uh, 
sound approach. And when I heard the Davy Allen and the Arrows records, one of which is called Psychedelic, <laughs> such a great title, I said, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to be in an instrumental band, a psychedelic instrumental band. And that's how I formed the Insect Surfers with that in, intent. And w whereas we don't really use much fuzz distorted guitar, I did want to make something that was, uh, you know, it was a fun music that you could dance to, but it would also create a headspace. I wanted to do something that was as fun as the B-52s and Ramones danceable that had the kind of the maybe the braininess of sort of semi-psychedelic punk bands like Television or, or Wire. And I'm not saying necessarily we succeeded. Who You know, that's all, uh, you know, left up to the uh, observer. But uh, those were definitely influences that we that we had. And well, that makes I, sense I think to me. that, you know, and this, this was 1979. So, uh, you know, I've been doing the band since summer of 79. So, yeah, we have finally been around long enough so we can stake the claim of uh, Planet Earth's longest running modern surf band. <laughs> yeah. So I got still doing it. I still it, like it. I know you do. And it's the your, your enjoyment of it is uh, is quite infectious. I mean, you're, you, you have a, a, a very uh, exuberant playing style and the love of the music uh, comes through. I'm kind of curious asking you, like, what do you mean? It's a good, it's kind of an interesting question. What do you mean by psychedelic music? Now, if you just say psychedelic music to people, some people think that like it's a genre, like it's like a certain kind of like, like the Grateful Dead, which aren't even that psychedelic sometimes. They sound like just sort of a demented country band. Um, or it's a certain kind of tonality of like a heavy, you know, psychedelic guitar solo with like spacey effects like Hawkwind or something like that. But but psychedelic music, of course, if you once you expand the the concept, it, it it shows up all over the place. So what is the essence of it, or what was what you wanted? You mentioned like kind of a heady thing, or a little brainy, or a little bit more like a place, or what what is it? What what did you want to add to make to give a the surf music that you were making a psychedelic dimension? Uh huh. Well, I think that. Yeah, I mean, quote unquote, psychedelic music, that's a pretty huge umbrella. Um, and I think that the best of psychedelic music is something that you can uh, make pictures in your mind with. And that's why vocal music detracts a little bit from that thing so say you know the best parts of quote like when the grateful dead are quote unquote psychedelic it's usually when they're jamming and not so much when they're you know singing you know when they're that's uh, so i think instrumental music is the best psychedelic music if that, if that makes sense when you're not being dictated you know what to imagine or whatever so i you know and you can uh, do that, you know, various ways by using different uh, tonalities or, or sounds that you think are trippy. Um, at the very beginning of Insect Surface, we used to use uh, an effect called the flanger a lot, which kind of sounds like a whooshing 
like a jet engine or something. And my friend aptly described it as, oh, yeah, Dave, that's a really good brain noise. (laughs) So um, and it's a fine line. I mean, you you don't want to use something just solely because uh, I mean, you want to integrate interesting sounds into something that ideally has some kind of um, structure or guide. It's it's a, it's a fine line. So, but for me, I found the best way to express my musical um, self was through instrumental surf music. And when we first started out in, in Washington, DC, this is 79, we, we started off, we were playing with a lot of punk bands at the time, like bad brains and, Um, You know, it was a real mixed bag. And um, when I moved the band out to Los Angeles in 1985 and started the band again with all different people, uh, we pretty quickly went to an all instrumental format, which we still do today. So, um, well, and also in Southern California, it's just a better vehicle. Yeah, yeah. But in Southern California, also you're uh there's there's already kind of a scene like in southern california there's already sort of probably i I can only assume more of a of a self-conscious surf or kind of nostalgic car biker you know that there's more of a zone for people to kind of recognize the value of that music did you find a little bit was it a little bit like a homecoming in a way or was nobody making surf music in the mid 80s even in southern california yeah, it was a little lonely out there in D.C. In uh, SoCal, there was a band that uh, came out a year after we did in 1980 called John, J-O-N, John and the Night Riders. And this guy, John Blair, uh, put out an album on Bomp Records called Surf Beat 80. And that was all instrumentals. It was, he was recreating the uh, 60s uh, vibe by doing half... A, a lot of old covers, you know, from 62, 63 and stuff. So there was kind of a kickoff and renaissance of people starting to play surf music again. There was there was hardly anybody doing it in the 1980s or, excuse me, uh, 1970s. It really kind of died then. But, you know, right at the end of the 70s and beginning of the 80s, people started to be interested in uh, this instrumental surf music stuff again. So there was a scene that we kind of were able to plug into. There was a band in uh, Redondo Beach that we used to play with a lot called the Halibuts, some of who have morphed into a band called uh, Low Straight Jackets right now. Well, excellent. I I think it's time to uh, hear some of your music. Now, you have a new record called Detura Moon. You've put out a lot of records. Detura, of course, being a... uh, Trippy psychoactive plant in the uh, in the western deserts and um, and the usual standard you know podcast promotional thing to do is to play something from the new record but I don't want to play something from the new record I want to play one of my favorite uh, insect surfers tunes that I've seen you play many times and is a particularly trippy one and this is the uh, the track Vaquita from uh, from yeah Vaquita yeah Vaquita is um our homage to it's the smallest and almost extinct uh, kind of uh, porpoise. It lives in the uh, Gulf of California. It's only about three or four feet long. It has a blunt nose and uh, they're almost 
completely uh, extinct now because of gill netting. And uh, nobody's even seen one uh, live except from a distance. Uh, it's very en enigmatic species. But So we make dolphin noises uh, at the beginning and all throughout the song with our guitars. And so, uh, yeah, vaquita. All right, let's hear it. All right, now, if I'm not incorrect here, Mr. Arnson, that uh, vaquita is only a small example of your fascination with, with weird animals. You've got kind of, I mean, of course... There, you, you invoke insects in the name of your band and the the uh, covers of the albums, which feature your own artwork, which we'll get to in a in a moment. Often feature these strange insects and uh, and weird alien creatures. Uh, what is your what is the, the your favorite peculiar animal that you've seen in in the wild? Um, that I've actually seen. Um... Or zoo or whatever. Like you finally saw it. Like, you know, like I just I finally know, saw you know, a platypus, like was... you know, and I was like, I'd never seen a platypus. In fact, <laughs> the thing about the platypus is like, we you know when I was a kid, I learned about the platypus. And then I just had no reason to think about the platypus for years and years and years. Just whatever. It just didn't come up. Nobody mentioned it. It wasn't in a book. It wasn't in a movie. I just didn't think about the platypus. And then finally, a long time later, somebody mentioned the platypus. And I couldn't remember whether it was a real animal or not. It was like, is this in the unicorn category or the <laughs> Tasmanian devil category? And I couldn't, I had this like moment of like, I, my brain couldn't decide what it was. And so for me, that's partly the sign of like a kind of peculiar animal. And then when I was in Australia, we finally went to a, like a, a you know, it was like kind of outdoorsy zoo. It was, a, it was not a, not a horrible zoo. And they had a platypus in the water, and it was indeed kind of remarkable to see. Um, so that counts too. So I'm just, I, you know, I know that you're. There are many uh, animal encounters in your experience. Sure. Well, you know, I, when I was in uh, my college years, I was taking marine biology, and I've always had a fascination with exotic animals. One of my favorites is the pangolin, which is a kind of scaly anteater uh, that, sadly, also besides the vaquita, is also just recently become one of the most endangered species in the world. I don't know whether people are, I think the Chinese are using the scales of it for medicine again, you know, and it uh, probably tastes good. But the pangolin is a, a great critter. And also the binturong is uh, one of my favorites. That's, uh, an, um, it's related to the civet. It, it kind of looks like a black raccoon. They live in, uh, Malaysia and Southeast Asia, they can hang from trees with their large prehensile tails, and they're just cute as all get out, I tell you. So the pangolin and the binturong, are, those are two big ones. That's I highly, uh, recommend yeah. that you look this up. Yeah, that, no, you check them out. Also, I, I encountered a civet in, uh, in Bali. They had one at the, uh, at the civet coffee place. You know, they wanted to Yeah, you can make their... a perfume from their gland. Yeah. For the, oh, they did, call... you drink, did you drink the yes, civet coffee? we did. We drank the civet <laughs> coffee. They had, they had a big sign. It was kind of like one of these tourist places where they show you how they make the stuff, and then they give you some drinks, and then they you know, want you to buy stuff, which is fine. They were nice. People in Bali were very nice, but right outside, like where you would sit to drink the coffee, they had a big sign on the on the opposing um, hillside that said "Cat Puccina." <laughs> nice, oh, you're my hero, Eric. Oh my for, god! For those of for those of you 
for those people out in Radio Land, the civet coffee is it's coffee made from coffee beans that have, let's say, passed through the civet's digestive tract first. Very delicately said. I, I appreciate that. And then there's two different yeah. kinds. There's the wild kind where they find it in the you know in the jungle, and then there's the one where they make it. And the wild kind costs more. So there's a little extra pizzazz to that. Uh, that jungle defecation, I gather. Nice. Crappuccino. Crappuccino. So pulling ourselves out of uh, out of the crappuccino, um, you know, I, I want to also emphasize that your, your interest in psychedelia extends beyond um, making music that is trippy, that feeds the head, uh, as they said back in the day. Um, that you have a long-standing interest in writing about um, psychedelic literature and, and issues in psychedelics, uh, particularly with a very important, if uh, relatively unknown, journal called uh, Entheogen Review. So I'd love to just hear you talk about Entheogen Review, when you started to get involved, what were the kinds of things that you were interested in, uh, in writing about and, you know, how you kind of, how you've kind of found yourself being, uh, you know, someone contributing to, uh, psychedelic discourse, you know, at a time when it was very, uh, very underground. I read a book in 1995 that I found, uh, in all places in Walden books, it was called Psychedelic Shamanism by an author named Jim DeCorn. And, uh, in that book, he was, talking about how plant-based entheogens could be used for um, spiritual purposes. And I'd taken psychedelics through high school and college and kind of never gave it a thought. But for some reason, I'd never thought about using psychedelics for spiritual enlightenment or um, focus before. And so that really kind of set me on a path. I, I ended up getting a subscription to a magazine called Shaman's Drama around that time. And Terrence McKenna was being broadcast on a local Los Angeles station, KPFK. This guy, Roy of Hollywood, would do these uh, after midnight uh, lecture broadcasts. And, you know, you'd hear Terrence McKenna talking about mushrooms and DMT and how these were vehicles about, you know, meeting other intelligences. And um, I, around the same time, I found the Entheogen Review, they would call it ER for short, and it was a quarterly publication started by Jim DeCorn from Psychedelic Shamanism. And it was people sending in uh, all the information they knew on psychedelics at the time. This is really pre-internet, so you'd wait with bated breath, you know, with your, you know, four times a year subscription, you'd get this little a pamphlet on colored paper in the mail and there'd be somebody talking about their experiences with you know Amanita muscaria or people were just starting to talk about salvia divinorum you know here's an article on here's the you know the chemistry the molecular breakdown of such and such and so I really got involved with uh, that scene and I, I went to some conferences up in the Bay Area that were being put on in the uh, mid to late 90s called uh, Mind States. And the guy who put on Mind States ended up uh, editing the Entheogen Review after Jim DeCorn moved to Europe. And I just, um, I, that's where I first saw you speak, in fact, at one of the Mind States interviews. And some of the Mind States were held in other cities and other countries. 
And just because I was so interested in the subject, I started doing book reviews. Uh, and in fact, I even did a, a review for Entheogen um, Review. It was called um, 10, what was it? 10 Non-Electronic Instrumental Releases. Um, and so I've, I've continued writing to this day. In fact, I, I do book reviews for Arrowhead now, uh, which is online. And um, so I've been doing that for about the past decade or so. You can find a lot of my book reviews uh, on arrowhead.org. Uh, one of my favorites was one of Jim DeCorn's follow-up books to psychedelic shamanism. It's called The Cracking Tower, which um, refers to uh, both oil and souls being refined and um the, the book is the premise is now that you've discovered the psychedelic experience where you go from there so, uh philosophically that was a really good one and Whoa. there's a great book too called the, the jaguar who roams the mind anyway there i've probably i've got about three pages of book reviews up online now that's good. That's good. I mean, what the the Jim DeCorn one is an interesting one. I mean, it, did you get to meet him when you were uh, writing for ER or going to these conferences? I did see him speak at one of the conferences. Yeah, I never. And, I, uh, I, I had him on the show. Articulate guy. Yeah, I had him on the show. We, I never met him in, in person when the Cracking Tower came out, and that was that was a trippy book. You know, one of the interesting things that DeCorn did. Um, in his sort of philosophical interpretations of or of these experiences, was uh, to reinvoke the Gnostic language of archons um, in his description of some of the forces that you would encounter. You know, if you listen to some, it's always this kind of problem if you listen to psychedelic discourse, people talking about the inter internal phenomenology of the trip, the kind of beings they meet, the places they go. There's always this trouble about what what do you do with the with the creepy dudes? What do you do with the ones that seem malevolent or malicious? You know, is that is that just a psychological projection that you're supposed to work through, or is it actually kind of real and you got to learn techniques to avoid them? And you know, it's actually kind of a conundrum that people don't really talk about that that thoroughly or well, in my opinion. But uh, Jim DeCorn had this really interesting line. He goes, "Yeah, some of them like whether they're inside or outside, they're archons, meaning within the Gnostic." kind of cosmology that they're lower beings that think they run things uh, and you know try to control stuff you know and that the goal as the sort of gnostic psychonaut is to like pierce their control mechanism um, and he, I always appreciated that about him like he kind of even though he was talking about shamanism he wasn't talking about it in an entirely indigenous way that he also had this kind of gnostic jungian uh, dimension that's very much part of the cracking, uh, the cracking tower as well. But it's a good question. What do you think, man? After you've been exposed to the psychedelic possibility, what do you do with that then? Well, how does that inform your life? What's the call? Is it? What's the? What's the message? You know, what's what's the point? Right. Well, I think that. I mean, I will just blatantly say that I, I love psychedelics. I've learned a lot from them, I think. And, and they're not for everybody. I don't think, I don't think everyone has the uh, necessary disposition to either learn or enjoy them. But I, I think most people do. And I, I think for me, um, my past usage of 
psychedelics uh, has made me a more sensitive person. It's made me more sensitive to uh, how people uh, relate to each other um, and, you know, maybe how, how the world works, you know, with the, with the big picture. Um, you know, there's lots of insights. And, and also there's, you know, been, you learn from missteps, you know, maybe the occasional time, you know, you, you took too much and you find yourself, oh, okay, well, I can't really speak right now, uh, you know. But uh, I, I think they're, they're, uh, they're a really great uh, spiritual learning tool. They're not spirit themselves, but I think that they can lead you, uh, they can guide you to um, um, a higher understanding of how spirit works. Yeah, and definitely also within the context of, of nature. I mean, you know, we were talking before how how even, you know, surf music can sort of develop a kind of relationship with water, with waves, with the with the sort of elemental power of the ocean in our, you know, in, in your life if you live near the ocean. Um, and another, like, whole dimension that we didn't talk about before when we were talking about your music that I also associate with kind of a psychedelic encounter, probably even more so than the ocean, is the desert. You know, growing up in Southern California, tripping was, you know, partly about tripping in the desert, which to my mind has a certain extra level to it because there's so many different geological frames, so you're kind of shifting timescapes and you can sort of see the kind of ancient course of the earth and, uh, and appreciate the, the scrabbly vitality of, of, of life in the face of, of harsh conditions. There's something really powerful about the, the desert. And of course, that's also a major motif of the in insect surfers. It seemed to me that in addition to being one of the most psychedelic surf bands, of course, there's other psychedelic surf bands. There's the Merman, who I got to see at Burning Man back in the mid-90s, etc. But the other thing is that it seems to me that you're also one of the only bands that kind of took it into the Ennio Morricone, trippy desert zone. And I can only imagine that's partly because the desert is also for you a place of this kind of weird, animus, spiritual encounter uh, you know, like the Daytura Moon re referenced in your in your recent in your recent record. Yeah, that's true. The uh, the desert is a really great uh, psychedelic template, I guess you could say, and we are very influenced by the Ennio Morricone spaghetti westerns. You know, he used like whip cracks and bells and low chants. Uh, and it was a really very, uh, a very original and compelling way to interpret the uh, scenery and ambience of the Old West and the, gr the great outdoors of the West. And actually, one of my um, guitar influences is John Cipollina from Quicksilver Messenger Service. And in their best moments, uh, instrumental, of course, they, for example, have a song called Gold and Silver, and they have a song called The Fool, uh, which is 12 minutes long, which is mostly instrumental. And in both of those songs, there's definitely uh, elements of the, um, the twang the, the, of the Ennio Morricone 
uh, spaghetti western themes. And so with the insect surfers on our records, there's always at least one or two spaghetti westerns on, on each record. And, and it is a desert ambiance thing that we, we, we try to bring out and take to the people. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's also, um, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting part of, of you know, cla- you know, if we think of psychedelic music being music that was made in San Francisco in the 1960s, then there's there's always that that element as well, which, again, doesn't quite seem as remembered as it should, that there was this very important motif um, both of Native Americans, which is complicated, problematic, but also not as problematic as some people might think. It was a very interesting engagement. It involved actual connections with Native American groups and, you know, sort of, but, you know, a lot of romanticism, but also a kind of recuperation of the cowboy. You know, the, the charlatans were the first band to start dressing that way. And then, you know, later on, you see it on the on Deja Vu and the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young record where they're all kind of, they look like it's a 19th century photograph and the band or whatever. But there was always this sort of relation with the cowboy. And I think it was, it was, it was because, not just because the clothes were available or they were, they were sort of cool or they were kind of rustic and pre-modern, but I think that there was also some sense that there was a kind of spiritual or sacred power in the West, in the desert, in, in the kind of um, landscape uh, that the Westerns took you to, and that by kind of returning there in a certain way through a twang or a harmonica, uh, you could kind of o- open the space uh, a little bit more. Yeah, I, I, I concur. There's definitely something. Um, and I think there was kind of a, a relation perhaps in, you know, the psychedelic mental frontier and tying that in with the old West frontier, you know, where, you know, I mean, the physical meeting the mental there in, in terms of uh, imagery. And in, in fact, I mean, I go to, out to um, the desert several times a year just to recharge. In fact, that song uh, back there, Vaquita, I finished um, uh, doing a, a desert hike. You know, I went and did did my little desert quest hike, and then when I came back, like, all oh, right, I finally finished the song, and I, you know, went to my guitar that I'd left, you know, by in in my car, and sat on the picnic table in the lonely uh, campsite, and you know, finished the song there. Um, that's a, that's, a, that's a good old tale, you know. Of course, talking about psychedelics and this period in the '60s when there was a kind of return of the cowboy and the and the cowboys and Indians in a way. Um, makes me think of another uh, another way into the final thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is uh, your art and your new coloring book, Insect Surfers and, a- and Alien Allies, which is something I've been looking forward to for a long time and very happy uh, to finally receive it this new year. And, of course, the, uh, the, the, the linking figure here is Rick Griffin, the... Um, you know, uh, artist, comic book writer, uh, illustrator, concert poster uh, illustrator um, that, you know, you and I both both love, you know, coming up in the 1960s doing surf cartoons and then moving on to hardcore psychedelic imagery in the late 60s, goes born again Christian in the 70s, fascinating period. 
uh, and then dies later on, I believe in the early 90s, in a motorcycle uh, accident. But your your work, you know, Rick Griffin is clearly one of the people who influenced your your uh, cartooning that, that graces a lot of your records and, and your posters and a lot of stuff surrounding Insect Surfers and now this, this coloring book. Um, and you've, you've described the way that the Insect Surfers is kind of like a Rick Griffin psychedelic or surf band rather than uh uh what was the contrast rather than a big daddy rather than a big daddy Roth right yeah you know in the early in the early 60s a lot of the uh, surf bands were I think they were more influenced by big daddy Roth who drew the rat fink which was kind of a, a car culture symbol you know kind of a mutated uh Mickey Mouse you know, uh, and that there's something to be said for that, but it, it, there's kind of a retro feel and we, uh, cleave more to the forward thinkingness of, of Rick Griffin's artwork, who indeed he started off as a cartoonist for surfer magazine with this, you know, little big mouth, big headed character called, uh, Murphy, the surfer. And he moved up to San Francisco 65 or 66 and ended up doing some of the greatest uh, psychedelic Fillmore posters of them all and the Grateful Dead Aksamaxa cover and uh, just amazing imagery with, you know, giant beetles and Hopi Indian sun and uh, just uh, amazing art. You know, one of the things about... So, yeah, I, I, think, I think that we're more of a... Yeah, you're right. We're, we are way more of a Rick Griffin surf band than a Big Daddy Roth surf band. Yeah, and one of the reasons I mentioned him is that, is that Griffin was also instrumental in kind of kick-starting the, the, you know, the cowboy thing because he, he did early concert announcements for the Charlatans and he started to go back and use 19th century lettering, which he then you know, expanded into an almost kind of unreadable uh, use of typography. One of the most brilliant things that he, I mean, he's brilliant on many scales, but his use of typography, both in terms of sampling older styles as a way to create a kind of, you know, historical density to his images, but also just as playing with the, the forms and shapes themselves and pushing them almost to a kind of point of unreadability uh, in, a, in a trippy way, where those were really key elements of, of what he did and his own feeling for, you know, indigenous realities or whether it was, you know, uh, you know, mushroom uh, huichol Indians in, in Mexico or uh, Native Americans. He definitely had a sense of a kind of world uh, that's outside of a modernity that you could kind of access in some way if you lined the stars up right. But one of the things about Griffin's imagery you know, again, you know, the, the, the kind of happy, fluffy aspect of the psychedelic nostalgia, you think of the summer of love, and then it's like, oh, no, and then they started taking speed, and it was a bummer. But there was always a kind of, you know, a, a less happy, fluffy dimension to, to psychedelia. And you see that with Griffin's imagery. Like, it's, it's not, you know, it's powerful. It's so, sort of sacred also sort of pop culture, you know, you can get the little, there's a little bit of the gutter in there as well. Uh, but it's, it's heavy, <laughs> you know, it's, he's definitely... Yeah, there's a lot of archetypal, uh, a lot of archetypal symbols used, you know, with eyes and pyramids and uh, like I said, you know, the Indian uh, sun imagery and, 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 and skulls. So yeah, he, he definitely uh, was pretty clued in 
to the to the whole thing. Uh, another influence uh, on me with this coloring book I just put out is um, I've done comics all through my life, and I, I finally you know, happily got out this coloring book thing, Insect Surfers and Alien Allies. You know, I, I looked on the Google net and it said, well, you need a theme if you put out a coloring book. So, okay, Insect Surfers and Alien Allies, because half the drawings are insect surfers and half of them are, you know, alien creatures. Um, and another big influence was uh, Peter Max, who did, you know, the, you, you know, some great posters in the late 60s, you know, drenched with rich colors that I uh, encourage you to uh, put in this coloring book. Um, you can, you can go to the insect surfers. You can go to www.insectsurfers.com on the website and you can find the coloring book or our many recordings of the past billion years or whatever. Um, so come on down. Thanks for, you know, your interest. Yeah, I, sure. I do want to say also in terms of guitar, uh, influences uh, besides John Cipollina and I, I love Tom Verlaine from television, Ron Ashton from the Stooges, uh, a big influence who, who uh, when I was growing up uh, was Yor McAlkinen, the uh, Jefferson Airplane guitarist. And um, he ended up doing a band called Hot Tuna, which was more of like a ragtime blues thing, although they turned into a, a heavy uh, rock band like Cream for a while, but uh, Yorma has a, a, a camp now, uh, a, an instructional school in Southern Ohio called the Fur, F-U-R-P-E-A-C-E, Fur Peace Ranch. And um, I took, um, he usually teaches hot tuna, you know, like, like the ragtime acoustic picking, but he did an electric guitar course a few years ago. So I managed to get in one of those classes. And um, I got the greatest compliment from him. He was, the, the drill was, you, there was eight of us and we'd be sitting, you know, uh, in front of him. We all had our little one foot square amps and he would play either a Jefferson Airplane or a Hot Tuna song. And we'd one by one do a solo to the song and then we'd nod at him and uh, he'd wind up the song and then we'd discuss. So he did this Jefferson Airplane song called Good Shepherd and I did a real psychedelic soul, solo. And um, I, nodded my head okay i'm finished and he shook his head and, you know like no keep going you know so went on for a little longer at the end he goes like ah dave your psychedelic aesthetics are peerless you know like <laughs> coming from york how can I? it's like wow so you know i have him on tape doing you know saying that so maybe i can put that on my headstone or something like, ah, <laughs> dave, your psychedelic aesthetics are peerless that was a really great compliment so absolutely hopefully yeah. one of these days i can i can return to his fine fine school that's that's uh that that's quite interesting. So how do you how do you keep your uh your 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 guitar playing is it's clearly also part of the way that you uh, relate with life and and keep on the the happy go lucky tip. So it's for you playing music isn't just about playing music. It's kind of uh, it's a bigger it's it's in a bigger picture, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if I don't have a fretted instrument around me for a few days, I really start to get antsy. Um, but I, I, I also like, besides the guitar, I have um, a score of uh, Chinese instruments, and I have a, a bazooki, a, a mandolin from Greece that I play a lot. I've been doing some solo performances with the bazooki, actually, the past couple of years, where I do, besides some, you know, Arabic 
and uh, Greek instrumentals. I do, you know, throw in some psychedelic folk songs by, say, Yorma Kalkin or Kendra Smith from uh, Dream Syndicate. So that's been pretty fun. But yeah, I, uh, if I don't play, I start to kind of wither. Yeah, I, I like that you before you said that you, you, you get you get antsy, and of course that you know we're we're back in the realm of the of the of the insects, and there is a, a main Hey-o, character. Bro. There is a main character in the comic book and in and in your comics and or, or in the coloring book and in your comics and and artwork. You know, there's a, a kind of a a central insect surfer that we we come to recognize uh, over time. How did that guy develop? Like, was it, did you have an insect encounter? Was it, was it like, why that kind of insect? Like there, there's something about those insects that have a certain psychedelic familiarity to me. Uh, that's a good question. A- actually, you know, I think I really was into uh, the way Rick Griffin drew insects. Like for example, there's the cover of it. Is it zap number four or five where the beetle is holding the lantern and there's eyeball creatures on the stairway and and there's a word balloon where he's saying Yehoshua. Uh, um, But I I remember when, when I was in uh, college studying for a uh, marine biology or chemistry exam in, in the margins, I drew a little picture of an insect surfing and a little light bulb kind of went over my head like, Oh yeah. That's kind of what I want to do with music, kind of an insectoid uh, surf band, kind of like a science fiction-y surf band thing. So it was actually just the creation of a little cartoon that kind of uh, kicked my own butt. So uh, I I would say that the creature is probably half uh, praying mantis, you know, one of my favorite insects, of course. Yeah. Praying mantises are great. Dragonfly is good. Yeah. What is it about the praying mantis, though? There's some kind of people talk about like if you read trip reports, you're going to come across praying mantises. That's definitely one of the <laughs> archetypes that's looming there. Now, where do these are? Why are they archetypal? I don't know. Nobody knows. Is it Jungian? Is it just associational? Is it that we we hear about them and so we see it that way? Is it that there really is these, you know, ancient uh, alien uh, um mantis creatures that are looming over the interdimensions opened up by uh, taking psychedelics I, you know it's really hard to say uh, after a certain point but but i'm curious if you have any a sense or have heard any stories about the the mantises of uh, of psychedelic space that's a really uh funny point no i i don't think i have actually had any personal experience with mantids but i know like dale pendle uh has used as a praying mantis as an image. And I do remember some trip reports in uh, Entheogen Review about people seeing, you know, mantids. And I, I think you're, also you're right, you know, you read some people's descriptions of uh, DMT reports and they see, you know, mantid beings. But uh, I haven't, you know, I think they're really cool looking, but I don't, I myself have not really had any specific experiences. I just think they're kind of kick to. Yeah, my only my only tale is is uh, I was at Arco Santi, which is this you know trippy place, Paolo Soleri's. Uh, oh yeah, that's a of, uh, that's a really cool place. Yeah, you I've know, been it's there. This yeah, sort awesome, of medieval, awesome futuristic, um, you know, desert little mini city out in you know the, in the Arizona desert, 
and we were at a, I was at a conference, and it was a kind of a strange conference, you know, it definitely had different, uh, different topics going on about the future and consciousness and networks, it was back in, uh, you know, in, in the early 2000s, uh, if not the late 90s, I think it was the early 2000s, anyway, so I'm sitting there giving my talk, and the moment my talk turns very briefly to the topic of aliens and UFOs, this glowing green mantid flies right on the stage and lands right on the chair next to me for all to see. <laughs> it was it was a wonderful synchronicity. <laughs> wow, that's like Bernie Sanders, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and the Little Bird. Uh, that moment. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Very much so. So, what about uh, what else you got coming up? Uh, with the with the band how often you guys are playing well we usually play in los angeles about twice a month or so uh, although due to a recent knee replacement surgery um I'm, we're not doing anything until the beginning of march uh today being uh what january 4th is it yeah um yeah, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be able to bounce around again pretty soon, you know. Uh, I, I do enjoy jumping up up and down, or, uh, you know, while I play. I can't really stand still while I play. And um, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get out of town a little bit. We usually play the Bay Area about twice a year. And uh, last year we um, were in Europe for um, several weeks. And also four years before that, there's a international surf music festival in Livorno, Italy. That's where Pisa hits the coast uh, called the Surfer Joe Festival. And they've got surf bands from all over the world playing there uh, every summer. And then, you know, we'll do that and then we'll go on a European tour. So it's always great to play in countries more civilized than our own. Yeah. You know, and in fact, I have to say that um, a lot of the European surf bands have really taken the ball and run with it. You know, some of the best uh, instrumental surf bands now are, are uh, some of the European bands, like there's the Phantom Four from Amsterdam. There's El Ray, R-A-Y from Denmark with a gal bass player. And there's the Kilauea's from Germany. Um, really great stuff. Um, we got a really nice compliment when we were in uh, Germany the first time, um, somebody came up to us and said, thank you for bringing improvisation to surf music. Because a, a lot of it, uh, of some of the surf music, um, and it's, you know, twang and drip and all, uh, a there's not necessarily, you know, it's patterns. It's not necessarily a huge amount of improvisation, but we do that. You know, we kind of are constructed like, um, a surf and almond brothers in the sense that like I'll play the lead on one verse, then the next verse, the other guy plays lead and we keep tossing it back and forth and we'll do dual leads. So it was kind of nice to get that compliment of us, you know, actually doing improvisation within the form. And so, you know, that's one of our strengths is that, you know, we, we try to keep the, um, the medium, you know, kicking and screaming and pull it in, pulling it into the, you know, the, the modern age, you know, so. That, that, that sounds great. So uh, that's what we're, we're, we're asked. Well, that's our goal. That's uh, what we're looking forward to in the new year is, you know, keep the medium fresh and perky. Indeed. And uh, improvisation in life as in, uh, as, in, as in music is uh, one of the keys to keeping that 
uh, fresh. We just got a minute or so left here, and I, I, I feel compelled to mention uh, your other band. Uh, that would be the uh, the Raw Power Rangers, which occasionally oh, the Raw Power is, Rangers, uh, which is a phenomenal. Yeah, we do experience. that. <laughs> That's a band that we do four or five times a year. It's um, I, I love Iggy and the Stooges, and um, we've got it's it's a tribute band. We do the entire Raw Power album by Iggy and the Stooges from 1973, and for our punk rock credibility, we've got Don Bowles on drums, uh, who who was in the band The Germs and 45 Grave, and he now plays with Ariel Pink. Um, and then I get to be the Iggy guy. So um, I get up there, I take off my shirt and glasses, I have silver pants and gloves, uh, I have a, a blonde wig, ironically called Surfer Dude, and I get to you know run around and do antics. It's, you know, a, like it's a phenomenal performance, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, uh, David Arnson is no longer a spring chicken, but let me tell you, he goes full spring chicken when he's literally climbing across <laughs> along the ceiling of the of the bar or sca sca escaping out the front uh, door to to climb up a telephone pole. Um, it's really quite an extraordinary experience. So if you're in the uh, if you're in the L.A. area or in California, keep your keep your antenna up for the raw power. Rangers, as well as for uh, the Insect Surfers, and once again, Insect Surfers and Alien Aliens, Alien Allies. David's uh, new coloring book is available on the Insect Surfers website. Hey, Mr. Arnson, thanks so much for coming on Expanding Mind. Sure, it's been uh, quite the pleasure. Always a uh, nice to uh, chat with you, Mr. Eric Davis. Mr. Eric Davis. All right, and well. <laughs> uh, hopefully, we'll talk to you sooner and later. Definitely. All right, to all you out there listening, keep your minds open. <laughs> <laughs>